Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 343 of the Tick Boot Camp podcast. The title of today's interview is Shining Through Lime. My name is Emma Pakoulis. And I'm Matt Zapatello, and I'm so happy to have Emma back as my co-host for the second time to interview the brilliant Rebecca. Matt, this was a really exciting interview. Without further ado, let's get to Rebecca. Hey, Rebecca, welcome to Tick Boot Camp. First, tell me a little bit about your childhood. Were you from San Diego originally? No, so I actually was born and raised for until I was 20 in upstate New York. I was from Albany, Saratoga County area. And overall, my childhood was pretty uneventful. I was just a normal kid. Uh, I did start during the age of nine to have a lot of issues. And later we would figure out, you know, it was all related to Lyme. But my childhood was normal. I was a, a very artistic kid, very intelligent. From what my teachers have said, it was like normal suburban life. Okay. So you said at nine was when you saw the tick bite, your first one. I read. Yeah. So um, I was playing at a park and I, I had never even heard of what ticks were, but at this specific park we used to play at, there were signs posted of pictures of ticks and it said Lyme disease and it had a picture of a bullseye rash and like a park for kids. And so as we were getting into the car, um, my mom noticed that on the back of my neck, I had a tick embedded in me. And so immediately we drove to the nearest Walmart they went to get some tweezers and they just, I remember sitting in the car, like crying because I have this bug like in the back of my neck. Of course. <laughs> and so I'm like sitting there waiting for them. Then they come out and then they just yank it, which now I know is oh, not the greatest way to remove a tick, but. I'm cringing, Rebecca. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So. That's what they did at the time. And um, after that, I started having some issues, but it was very like not until years later, I'd say five years later where I had issues, but I started getting migraines here and there. I started fainting here and there and, and but it wasn't so bad, you know? So you never fainted until after your tick bite? No. Okay. Okay. And all of those symptoms developed over years? Yeah, over a few years when I turned 14, I was in like middle school and I think maybe puberty. Um, I, there's a couple factors that I think played into it. I think puberty, I think getting my wisdom teeth extracted, I got a mono, obscene bar. So all those things, I think in combination really brought the infection out of whatever was going on. And then I also had gone to a fall retreat with my um, religious organization at the time. And it was up in the Adirondacks and all those ticks. And I think that I probably got bit again as well. Okay. So what were you doing at the time when your symptoms were subtle enough and passable that like you were still active in regular life? Like you were social, you were a runner. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was very into school. Um, I, I wasn't like so social, but I did, I play with the neighbors. Like I, I, I did have friends. Uh, 
and I was doing all these activities, art and running was my biggest hobby at the time. I was super into fitness for 12 years old. Okay. As much as a 12 year old can be into fitness, I was running 25 miles a week. I had an at home gym. So I was like lifting weights, little 12 year old me. And I loved it. Yeah. And it was the best. And I did horseback riding. I, I was, I was pretty active for the most part. Yeah. Rebecca, I'm gonna I'm gonna just chime in here because I, I have so many thoughts running through my head already from just just the first couple of minutes of you and Emma talking. So mm-hmm. when you were bit at nine, you said you were at a park and there were signs. Can you just tell us exactly, you know, what part of the country and what part of the state were you in where you were seeing these signs? Because a lot of states don't even recognize, you know, chronic Lyme or take Lyme seriously. So I'm very impressed that they had signs, frankly. Yep, Albany County in New York, so upstate there tends to be a lot of signs specifically around the Albany area where it has like a warning sign saying with a tick, picture of a tick, a picture of a bullseye. And it says like warning Lyme disease or tick infections. And it doesn't really say what to do. It just says warning. And then you were in the mountains and probably got bit and reinfected. And nobody, when you went to the mountains, talked about tick prevention using some sort of some sort of tick spray what to you know what to do tick checks there was no talk of that no no discussion about being in a high-risk environment in new york state no nope not at all so you get bit when you're nine you're reinfected when you go to the adirondacks then you have a dental procedure you have your wisdom teeth removed and we know dental procedures are big triggers for combined patients because it releases all of this bacteria into your bloodstream and it's a huge burden on your immune system and for me I experienced my first symptom right after a dental procedure. So that's really common in the Lyme community. And then you had mono, right? Epstein-Barr virus, which is another mm-hmm. opportunistic pathogen. That's a trigger. So here you are, your poor little body from nine to 14 is just getting beat up. You got two tick bites, probably maybe more. You're getting an opportunist- opportunistic virus with Epstein-Barr virus and mono. You're getting your teeth, you know, your wisdom teeth done and having all this bacteria flooding into your bloodstream. And at 14, you just can't, you can't take it anymore. But before we get to 14, Tamma's point, I mean, did you even know what Lyme was, how serious it was? Did your parents ever talk to you about it? And was it something that was taught to you as a child about the risks of tick, tick bites, Lyme disease, and, and you know, how to take proper precautions out when you're out in nature? No. Um, in fact, I used to make fun of it. I would say like Lyme as in like L-I-M-E. I was like, oh, Lyme disease, because my grandmother's dog had it or something like that and I don't know it was like a play on words you know I was young I was like oh Lyme disease that's so funny like and my grandmother was like no no it's really bad for the dogs you know it hurts them and in a lot of pain I'm like oh no so I only knew about Lyme disease in dogs and I knew that it came from a tick and my grandmother was very um cautious of ticks because she really lives like in the forest and she's with animals all the time. So I knew that she did spray like permethrin on her clothes and things like that when she went outside, but to nothing really besides that. It, now, the other, my, I, I'm going to shut up again and, and Emma's going to pick up after this question, I promise, but I have so many thoughts because you're just giving us so much information here. You also mentioned that you were a runner and you love to work out, right? And and again, there's a commonality there because I was an avid runner. I mean, I was running 10 miles a day and it was an outlet for me. It was a stress reliever. I love the endorphins. I love the high that it gave me. But we've learned from a lot of the doctors on this podcast that over-exercising is a real thing. And when your body's fighting off 
things like Lyme disease and Epstein-Barr virus and, and pathogens from dental procedures, if you're over-exercising, you're further burdening your body. You're actually weakening your body rather than strengthening your body. So looking back, do you think that that was happening with you, that you loved exercise and maybe you were over-exercising and that was contributing to your immune dysfunction and led to your crash at 14? You know, that may be a strong possibility um, because it was the same year when I joined the track team that I was really like, my coaches were pushing us. I was going hard at it and I was, I was loving it, but you're right. My body eventually, I just, um, I couldn't take it anymore. Started passing out on my runs. In the middle of them? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and then my, my parents wouldn't know where I was and they'd have to come look for me in their car. <laughs> Rebecca, our stories are oddly in line. My earliest symptoms was fainting and nobody could tell me why. And it was exercise induced fainting. I'd be running at the track down the block and I would just faint and I'd have my, and I'd eventually come back. And then it got to the point where I would just be like, if I want to just, just wait, I'll eventually come back to it because I couldn't figure out why. And this went on for like a year and then my symptoms progressed, but I finally found somebody who started with their early symptoms being fainting from running. I, that's, I don't think I've ever heard anybody tell me, Hey, I'd run and I'd faint. Cause that was me as well. So thank you for sharing that. You just validated my experience. You guys. Anyway, I'm sorry, Emma. I'm talking way too much. This is you. No, that's so huge. I'm, I'm glad you found each other. I'm sorry <laughs> for you both. That sounds awful. But um, so when you, when you started passing out when you were running, was that maybe like when the warning signs started that something seriously wrong or no? Yeah, definitely. That was scary. I mean, I never fainted in my life. And the theories at the time was that it was puberty and that's why I was, I was being affected and I couldn't handle it. And, um, I wasn't drinking enough water, you know, all those, all those classic, hydrated. yeah, those <laughs> classic things. Um, is this, so the people that are telling you you're dehydrated, etc. is that your primary care doctor? Like, did you see someone when you started passing out when you were no, it, it was mainly, you know, my family and granted they, they didn't know what was going on either. Nobody knew. So I think they're just trying to like, what's the logical reason why somebody might be passing out, you know? Mm -hmm. So they did their best, but it wasn't until I got worse that they really took me to the doctor and they're like, Fig figure this out. When you finally did see someone, what were your severe symptoms that made you go? In the beginning, it was like my muscles, they were hurting so much and my joints were killing me. And again, it was some of it was blamed on the running. Okay, well, well, then I stopped running because I got too weak. I was very weak. It was to the point where I was having trouble standing. I was dizzy and I couldn't stand either. And it, I, I was starting getting really confused. And then my speech would, would, it would slur. And besides that, it was just mainly the fatigue. I was so tired. It was, I was falling asleep in class. Okay. That, that wasn't like me. I had no energy to do anything. I would go home, I would fall asleep. And then I barely could wake up for school because, you know, I had to wake up at like five o'clock and I start, I stopped going to school at that point. I, I told my, my mom, I'm not going to school anymore. I can't do this. Okay. So who did she take you to? <clears throat> so, uh, first I saw my primary care doctor and at the time they didn't, they didn't think they said again, it's puberty. They didn't really think anything was wrong. 
okay. And then my big event after that, it happened before I could really see more doctors. I ended up in the ER because my left side of my body, just my left side was paralyzed. I couldn't move my arm, my leg, my spleen was enlarged. And I was super confused. I was hyperventilating. I had tachycardia. And at the time they were just shoving Ativan at me and trying to get me to calm down saying your daughter's having a panic attack. We don't really know what's wrong with her. This is not something like there's nothing wrong with her. There's no reason why her body would be paralyzed. You know, it was a wonderful experience. First time I was really (laughs) gaslighted. Literally. Uh, This is awful. This is. (laughs) little little me and so my mom goes on Facebook and rants about it and she's like I can't believe this happened with my daughter at the hospital and so it just so happened that a woman that she knew um, was a doctor she was a pediatrician and she said this sounds like Lyme disease bring her to see me and she's like okay so that's what we did before you saw her you were hospitalized Two more times or one more time? I, I've been hospitalized. I was hospitalized so many times. Oh, so Okay. So many. Over the course of like everything. But by the time I saw her, I was in really bad shape. How long was your left side paralyzed for? What made it unparalyzed? Um, it was in the, I think it started in the morning. And then it was just the whole day. I couldn't move. I remember my parents telling me, would you get up? Like, why are you on the ground? Get up, get up. I said, I can't move. I can't move. I, I don't know. I don't, and then I was panicking. And they called an ambulance. I went in the ambulance. Um, I don't remember when it just was not paralyzed. I must have went to sleep and I must have uh, woke it up the next day. Decent, but that wasn't the only time my body had like paralysis like that. Rebecca, did your mom and dad think that it was just anxiety? Because the ER doctors kept telling you and your family, you're fine. It's anxiety. It's puberty. There's nothing wrong with your daughter. So obviously you were so young. You're 14 at this time. But did your parents believe it? I mean, it, it, it's such a, you know, you want to believe the doctors. They're, they're, they're the people trained to tell you what's wrong. But it sounds like your mom didn't. And she went to Facebook, right? Which is awesome. But I'm just curious, was there doubt there? You know, do you know what was going through their heads? Obviously, you're young, but I'm curious if you ever had this chat with your mom, if she really thought you were just anxious, you know? No, she believed me. My par- Both my parents b- believed me. And they knew that at that point, they, they they knew that, okay, it's it's not anxiety. Something's wrong with our daughter. This is not normal for her that she would be this active and this involved in life. And then suddenly just what she's going to wake up one day and fake everything. No. When you were in the hospital for the paralysis, they didn't run any sort of Lyme test. I'm sure that they did drug tests. I'm sure that they did basic tests, but nothing that came back. No. Did this woman that commented on your mother's Facebook post ultimately become your Lyme specialist? She, it started out this way. Yes. For nine months, she was treating my Lyme disease. Yes. She was really wonderful. Okay. Did she test you for anything other than Lyme? Yep. So she was the uh, original person who scheduled, um, she did the 
the typical Western blot, ELISA, and my ELISA was negative. And then the Western blot was positive, which is like really not normal, especially yeah. with day and the, the criteria as well. So that was positive. But then she said, okay, I want you to do the Igenix test. So that one was not covered by insurance. We did pay out of pocket for most of it. Some of it was reimbursed, but uh, she tested me and I was positive for Babesia and Bartonella and the Lyme. Do you remember what else she tested you for? I think she did, that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, I had Epstein-Barr um, and then later, like years later, I just found out that I had Rocky Mountain Spotted, Kaksaki virus and then mycoplasma issues as well. Okay, so you find this lady, this doctor, and where do you go from here? What's your plan? You start on antibiotics? Yep, the first thing she puts me on is septin, uh, orals. So she puts me on septin and then she puts me on azithromycin together. And it's just, she also did probiotic um, and I think some other supporting supplements as well. Nothing too crazy, just basic like vitamin D or omega, stuff like that. And um, I didn't see anything improvement. All I saw was that my stomach was just really upset, not happy. I was puking every single day. I couldn't handle it. I'm like, I have all these horse pills that I'm taking <laughs> so much medicine every day. And I was just getting worse. I was not getting better. I didn't want to go to school anymore. Um, over the course of a few months, I just told her I'm not going to school. I I'm not doing this. I'm way too sick. And I just continued to have a spiral until eventually the doctor says, okay, I think you need somebody who can give you something that I can't do. And then she was also at the time... This was back in 2011, 2012. So they were going after doctors in New York state who treated Lyme disease. And she, they took her license away from her um, because she was treating Lyme patients. So she got it back eventually. Everybody held like a giant fundraiser for her. I believe there's legislation in place now that they can't do that, but it, it was brutal. It was so horrible and I felt so guilty. But she, she really did the best that she could. She was an amazing doctor. Did you just do Seftin and Azithro with her? Or did you change up your antibiotics with her or no? At that time, no, I did not change up the antibiotics at all. It was just those, those two. Steadily for nine months. Yeah. But so interesting, not interesting, it's really sad. But the fact that your doctor was treating people with Lyme disease and helping them get their health back, and then she lost her license, right? And that happened in, in you know, many, many decades ago, 30, 30 plus years ago with Dr. Buriscano was the first one out on Long Island. And he had to raise over a million dollars in legal fees from his patients to just keep his license with a slap on the wrist. And he eventually stopped treating, tr stopped treating medicine because he just didn't want to deal with that risk anymore. So it's interesting when people say, oh, well, New York has so many cases of Lyme disease. There must be a ton of Lyme-related doctors. And I'll tell you, on Long Island, there aren't that many. 
You know, some are popping back up in New York City, some, but I believe that's because doctors don't want to help Lyme patients because they know they spent a ton of money getting their, their MD, right, their medical degree, and they have a risk of losing their license and being blacklisted in the community. So we don't have doctors that can truly help us because of all the politics behind it. And that's really sad. And I, and I feel like you got caught up in the middle of that, Rebecca. So, you know, yeah. knowing what was going on, did you ever doubt your diagnosis? Because I can tell you at some points, like when I got diagnosed, by my first doctor and it was in a hospital and, and I got lucky enough to have a positive Western blot and ELISA. And then I saw a traditional infectious disease. He gave me 21, to, 21 days of IV antibiotics and I still wasn't better. He said, it's not Lyme, it's gotta be something else. And I believe that, right? I really just believe that like there was something else wrong with me, but there wasn't. And I, and I, that was a significant delay in my healing journey because I believe these doctors. So when your doctor was being attacked for treating Lyme patients improperly because chronic Lyme isn't real, right? The whole the whole justification behind taking these licenses away was because chronic Lyme isn't real. Lyme is cured after a short course of antibiotics. That was the rationale behind all these, these doctors losing their licenses. Did you start to doubt your diagnosis because you weren't feeling better? Like, where was your head at at this point? Well, I never doubted my diagnosis at all. I never doubted the validity, what I was feeling, uh, however, there was instances where she said, okay, I, I really can't handle this. I got to send you to a specialist just in case. I need to make sure your heart's okay, cardiologist. I need to make sure your brain is okay, neurologist. So I had to go to these specialties. And during that time when I went to these special these specialists, brutal, brutal. They were horrible. And I was, I was a young kid, a teenager. And they, they made me doubt myself. You know, I had a neurologist at that time. I was getting closer to the point where I needed, um, better, like just more intense care. I had, I was in a wheelchair at this point and I had a neurologist burp in my face when he was giving me his, um, the neurological exam. I had a cardiologist tell me that I was just anxious and I needed medication. Um, so and this is like, after your Lyme diagnosis, correct? This is after you had a positive Western blot Lyme disease test with yeah. your history of a tick bite on your neck, being in the Adirondacks and all these other things that are clearly indicative of you suffering from late stage Lyme disease, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, I, I, so, so you had, I just, I, you had all these doctors telling you it's not Lyme disease, but yet you still knew, which I think is awesome because I, I doubted myself. So, I mean, that's a testament to your strength, Rebecca, of how confident and strong you were at just 14 years old and how strong your, your family was as a support system to get you the care that you need. So, you know, mm -hmm. to, to Emma's point, if you can go on and tell us, so you're, you're pivoting after nine months of these oral antibiotics and, you know, supplements and, and things, you know, and, and probiotics, you get, you get referred out. So who's your next doctor and what's your next course of action now that the orals failed? Right. Uh, so I went to see, and I, he's actually been on your podcast before. His name is Dr. Daniel Cameron. Oh, we love Dr. Cameron. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Cameron. And um, so I, we went and saw him. It was a two and a half hour drive. We we were like, let's get the heck out of Albany, Saratoga. Nobody can help us up here. Let's go down to Westchester. So we took the drive and we went to see him. Um there was quite a sense of urgency as far as at that point they they had a wait list like most Lyme physicians at that time and they're like okay we can get you in like ASAP 
like, when can you come down? And we went into his office. I saw him and it, he, he really is a fantastic doctor. Okay. Can I, what was, what was the course of action that you began, begun? So he pretty much looked over what, what my previous doctor had did, um, assessed all my symptoms. At that point, I was so bad. I wheeled in my wheelchair. I had lawnmower earmuffs on because I did not want to hear anything. And they turned off the lights for me in the back as well because I was, and I just laid down on the table and then he came in, knock, knock. And he said, all right. And he talked to me, did really like a thorough assessment. And he said, I think we should do IV antibiotics. And then he told us, come back in a week. We're going to get you started. We're going to put your PIC line in um, the catheter for the IV antibiotics. And we're going to start treatment. What were your symptoms at that time? At that point, I was losing my hearing, my vision. I was blacking out. I was fainting, dizzy, nauseous, vomiting. Uh, really, I, psychologically, that is when I, I really started to, it became scary. I was having full-on neurological psychiatric symptoms. I had ended up in the psychiatric hospital at that point, right before I, I saw him not doing good. I was having hallucinations, hearing things, seeing things, uh, severely depressed, trying to off myself, if you will. So he, he was like, all right, we got to get this taken care of. Rebecca, can I, can I just jump in here? Because I, I think, first of all, thank you for being so brave and yeah. sharing that you are having these severe psychological symptoms, because so many people are insecure about that, myself included, right? At some point where I don't want to admit that I had these psychological symptoms from Lyme disease because somehow it makes it less legitimate because of how controversial the disease is. So I just want to take a point to tell everybody listening that psychological symptoms with Lyme disease are very common and hallucinations are very common. I had them. The one hallucination, the first one I ever had, and it's very detailed, but I'm going to share. I was holding a dead rat with a whole bunch of alive rats running around me and I'll never forget it. It scared the crap out of me, right? So Allie Hilfiger in her book, and we had her on the podcast, she shares, she was, she ended up in a mental health institute as well, because she had all of these psychological symptoms, which that ultimately led to her diagnosis of Lyme disease. But these are very common things to occur hand in hand, where the neurological, you know, effects of Lyme disease cause psychosis, they cause hallucinations, they cause depression, they cause anxiety. So I feel like at this point, even more so doctors are saying to you, hey, it can't be Lyme disease, right? Is, is, is that what you're getting even more pressure from? Because now you're ending up, ending up in a mental health facility. Are they just saying, hey, look, you're crazy. It's not Lyme anymore. You treated Lyme. You had antibiotics for nine months. I feel like that's probably where you were at, but yet your family still took you to see Dr. Cameron because they were so locked in on the truth, which is it's still related to a tick-borne illness, right? Which is awesome. So can you just kind of tell us about what was going on with your external influences, with your mental health issues and how your parents and you stood so strong in spite of all that? Right. Uh, when I started to show symptoms of anxiety and depression, they brought me to a psychiatrist immediately. And I had, thank goodness, I had the most amazing experience because my psychiatrist himself actually had Lyme disease. However, about two months into him helping me with everything, he just disappeared. 
We never heard from him again. We don't know what happened to him. I still to this day don't know what happened to him. Um, hope he's okay. But um, that from there, I was still getting psychiatric help. Thank goodness all of my doctors believed me. However, every time without fail, I went into a hospital, whether it was psychiatric or non-psychiatric, they just made me out to be like I was crazy. So my first time I was put in the psychiatric hospital they were they were just baffled what is wrong with this girl they actually thought my parents were like they were going to call cps on my parents they thought i was like they're being neglected and so they put me up from the psychiatric center to the neurological institute they did an e e g or like um the thing with your brain eeg yep eeg correct so the eeg they did it and Everything was like normal because I don't have um, epilepsy. So the doctor looks at me and he goes, he gets up really close to my face and he slides over and says, um, are you not getting enough attention at school? I was like, what? I don't even go to school. <laughs> How did your mom not slap him at that point? I'm shocked your mom did, didn't just fall oh. hit him at that point. My dad was so agitated. He immediately said, get my daughter out of here. I'm taking my daughter out. We're checking her out. I do not want her in here anymore. He was so arrogant. That man, like, that that one really sticks out to me. So they thought I was- Of course it sticks out to you. (laughs) Off my mind. (laughs) Oh my God. Every serious medical institution gaslit you along the way. Yeah, but I knew what I was feeling, and I knew that, like, no, I'm, I'm, I, I may have some issues now because I'm sick, but I know that at, at that age, I'm shocked that I knew, oh, these big adults, are they don't know what they're talking about. It's wild. Well, kudos on your perseverance and your authenticity to yourself and knowing and standing up for yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Okay. Did back to Dr. Cameron. Did he retest you? Is he who found the Rocky Mountain? Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Did he begin treating you before testing you or while waiting for results because you were so sick? Yeah. He began treating me with what he had right there. And then he started and his approach was very interesting and I noticed he would rotate like every few weeks I was I stayed on the IVA antibiotics but he would use oral antibiotics and change interchange them because he was trying to target the um like he would use things like Tindamax and Flagyl and Mepron to target like the Babesia Bartonella component while using the antibiotics more particular for the Lyme like the IV so he would switch things in and out every few weeks. It would change them up. And um, that was an interesting concept to me, but I, I really, um, it really, it's what got me better. So what other, what were your IV antibiotics? What other antibiotics did you take with him? If you remember. And right. also how long were you on each antibiotic for before he would switch one out? Like, was that consistent where he would like, do like cyclical periods or if you weren't responding to one, he would stop it. Right. So I was 
constantly the entire duration that I was that I had my pick line I was on IV rocepin so the septin the IV form and then oral wise I was never on any other types of um, IV I was only on septin and then for orals it would be switched out every two weeks that is when I would see him generally every two weeks sometimes a month it depends. He, he looked at my symptoms. It was kind of saying, okay, do we want to get her to have a Herxheimer reaction? How are you doing? What's too much for your body? Are we not doing enough? Because every time I would go in every two weeks, he, I would have to fill out the symptom chart to kind of see what's going on. And I was on supplements as well to support my body at the same time, doing different detox methods as well. IV and antibiotics, antivirals, antiparasitic were the main part of my treatment. Rebecca, I'm just going to jump in. So you said IV antibiotics, obviously the rocephin, but then you said antivirals as well. Were there other IVs you were getting pushed beyond the rocephin antibiotics from an antiviral and antiparasitic standpoint, or is it just, no. no, so it's really more oral on that side, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it was the IV rocephin and the orals. And then you said that you, you were doing things for detox as well and supplements, right? So I just feel like it's a really important part that I wish I had. When I got first diagnosed and I had the IV antibiotics, I did nothing. I didn't even know what detox was. I didn't even know what the word meant, right? So I was just so toxic. I just kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker. So Mm -hmm. talk to us about what you do with Dr. Cameron to help detox, to aid in, you know, your drainage system and purging all the dye off of these toxins. So you weren't getting so much sicker from the aggressive IV antibiotics. Right. Yeah. It's, it's so difficult because you, you get, he would always say to me, you're going to get worse before you get better. You're going to have these reactions, these Herxheimer reactions, and your body is really not going to be happy. So one thing he really, really stressed to me at the time I was too young to drink. So alcohol wasn't even a part of that, but he said no sugar. And it killed me because I loved sugar so much. He said, don't do it. And then I told him, well, I started eating sugar-free stuff. And he said, no, no, that's worse for you. (laughs) So I was banned from sugar. Um, I tried gluten-free, didn't didn't really do anything for me. Um, Rebecca, I'm just going to interrupt real quick. I'm sorry again, but with the sugar, was it just processed sugar or did you have to cut out natural sugar as well? Like fruits and things that were high, high in sugar that were natural. Yeah, you're correct. Processed. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cause for me, I was the same way. I mean, I was eating sugar when I shouldn't have, and I, I have zero reactions and had zero reactions to natural sugar with, you know, I would make a high sugar fruit smoothie and I would feel amazing. I'd have fake sugar and I'd feel like complete crap. Right. So I think for me, that was, that was my personal experience. But I, I'm, I apologize yeah. for interrupting. So you said, uh, you tried to go gluten-free, you couldn't do it. Right. So that was the second thing you talked about. Yeah. Oh, I agree. Also with the smoothies, that's how I was literally able to not starve because that was the only thing I could stomach was smoothie with protein powder put in it to to get my medicine in. But um, detoxing wise, there wasn't so much information back then on the internet in 2011, 2012, like it really wasn't what there is today at all. There was a few YouTube videos by a girl I became close with over the years and she would make detox videos saying how important lemon water was and how dry brushing, taking a little brush and then putting yourself in a really hot bath 
Um, people did infrared saunas. I didn't have access to one and I never did saunas, but those are some things that she also recommended. So I would find videos here and there about what to do. Um, mainly rest, really, really rest, hydrate, sleep, 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 sleep. And again, there wasn't like people did coffee enemas too. That's not something <laughs> at my age I, I was interested in. So there was, um, very limited options at the time for detoxing. So mainly lemon water, basic, basic self-care, baby myself, which was very easy because I was a teenager. I didn't have any responsibilities. I was exempt from school at that point. I didn't have to work a full-time job. I didn't have bills to pay. I feel now that I'm older, I feel terrible for people who in adulthood get Lyme because I don't know how people function. I don't but you, you said that uh, lymphatic massages and dry brushing were very helpful as well, which I think is really powerful to help get all the the die off and all the toxins in your lymphatic system, assisting yeah. it to be flushed out of your system. And are you comfortable sharing the name of the, the person you found on YouTube, her her YouTube channel? I'm hoping her channel's still out there. Maybe people that are listening can go look her up and find some of her videos. Her name was Lime Chick. Uh, and, and her name is um, Macy. So yeah, but she had those, those videos at the time. And I'm like, wow, this, this is the best thing ever. I don't know what to do. I never, I didn't know a girl my age who had Lyme disease. It's interesting because we interviewed Cassidy Colbert, who was about your age. And she said the same thing. Her, she was, you know, time-wise in parallel with yours. And she goes back then, there just wasn't as much information. And it was very hard to find people out on the internet back then that can relate. So she started a Facebook group, which had like almost nobody in it back then. And now it's just blown up over the years, of course, right? Now she still maintains it as a moderator and it's just become, become the self-sustaining group that she's created from, from well over a decade ago. But talk yeah. to us more, Rebecca, about your, about, I mean, how, I guess the first question I have is how long in total were you on the IV antibiotics for with the rotating orals every two weeks with uh, the supplements you were on and give us an idea over the course of that time, how you were getting better or not getting better. Right. So IV antibiotics overall was about a year and a half just with the IV. And then once I was able to, to graduate from that, I was still on oral antibiotics. And then eventually once all my symptoms were gone, I'd say after two years, um, I, I stopped. And um, you were yeah. symptom free after two years. So a year and a half yeah. of IV two years of orals and you were symptom free. Yeah. That's amazing. So Dr. Dr. Cameron, our man, I love Dr. Cameron. <laughs> he comes in clutch when, when you're getting sicker and sicker and sicker with your previous doctor. And here you are within two years and you're symptom free. And you were, you literally were wheeled into his office in a wheelchair with earmuffs on because you lights couldn't, off. you couldn't take with the lights off because you couldn't take any light or sound and you couldn't even walk yourself into the doctor's office. Right. I mean, that's a yeah. powerful, powerful transformation. I mean, walk us through like, I just want to hear, like, uh, give us an idea of how sick you were at your worst. Like, you know, you said you mentioned, you know, and there's no, there's no such thing as too much information. We want to be as honest as possible and truthful as possible and, and, and as um, transparent as possible, but we don't want to trigger people to the course. But like you said, you were, you were contemplating taking your life. You could, you couldn't function. And then two years later, you heals. I want to hear an idea of like where you were at your worst. Give us like a, describe a scene of at your worst and then describe a scene of, where you were at, at the end of the two years and how you had your life back. I just want to hear that radical transformation. If you can share that with us. Sure. Of course. The worst I was 
definitely had to be like psychiatric wise that that was the peak of oh my gosh this my life is a mess I was in a wheelchair I was not at school I lost all of my friends I my religious organization that I was a part of forget about it they did not care um my certain parts of my family were freaked out they stopped being in contact with me my parents I would sit and lay in my bed and stare at the ceiling for like hours and hours and hours a day. And I was probably sleeping for 20 something hours a day. I I don't even know how I slept that much. I have no idea how. And I had no, none none of my friends would visit me. Um, And so I remember I had a little iPod touch uh, and I would see my friends all on Facebook and I'm like, wow this is terrible. This, this really sucks. So I would cry every single day. And then, um, I just wanted to die every day. I wanted to die. And I was just so sick of my life crying all the time. And really like, that was, that was my worst mentally. I was like, I can't deal with this anymore. And switching over to my best, um, two years later, I decided that (laughs) all my fake friends that I had at school, I'm like, I don't want to be at school anymore. So I was able to finish my junior year of high school. And at the end of the year, I put in a request to drop out. Like, I'm like, I don't even want to go to my senior year. These people, it's, it's a waste. It's not going to be good for me. My school was mainly about sports. And I'm like, what, what am I going to do? Like, I need to be able to take care of my health gosh forbid anything happens. Um, well, I ended up overdoing it, but I put in, I went to college the next year for my senior year of high school would have been, I went to college full-time. I was working full-time between 40 to 60 hours a week, which I overdoing it, (laughs) overdoing it. And I had an apartment. I had got my first pet. I was still active in the Lyme community that I was on in Instagram. So like being a very strong advocate, really just dive deep into my hobbies. Uh, I was in a relationship at the time. I was like killing it. I was doing great. (laughs) So you were back to your pre-Lime state of over-exercising, overworking, overdoing everything to your go, 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 busy life, right? Yeah, we have a pattern here in my life. But I, I, Rebecca, so obviously, I mean, that was a great contrast that you just described, but I just want to touch back. I'm going to back up a little bit. You mentioned that your, your, I think it was your church group and some of your extended family treated you differently. Was it because they didn't think you were sick? Is it because they doubted you and your parents that it was actually Lyme disease? What was the, the tension there? Because if you had cancer, I can't imagine them treating you the way you described you, they treated you. So I think there's got to be some sort of like either A, they didn't believe you or, or B, they just simply didn't understand, right? Oh, Matt, you just brought back so many memories. The, oh, if you you had cancer. Oh, I used to say that at the ripe age of 14 all the time. You know, if my friends, if I had cancer, my friends would talk to me. I can't believe it. They didn't understand it. They thought I was faking it. They didn't realize what Lyme disease was. I lost my best friend and my boyfriend at the time. Like, I was young. Who cares? But they got in cahoots with each other. They left me. They're like, goodbye. <laughs> All my friends were like, goodbye. I remember one time I wheeled myself in to church and the pastor saw me and turned right around. He went the other way, completely avoided me. <laughs> they tried to stage an intervention with my father. 
Um, the church tried to stage an intervention? Yeah, they were tried to stage an intervention with him. He never told me this until years later. And he said that he just didn't like going and they were just so nasty because they didn't understand Lyme disease. They thought this, her daughter is causing problems in our church because too much attention's on her and she's creating problems with our kids. And I'm like, no, actually your kids just don't have empathy and you guys are targeting my family, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> your church could have collectively decided to pray for you and your family in these moments. No. <laughs> that is, I am so sorry that you've had to go through that. I, I am, I mean, it, that's just horrible. And to, to, to Emma's point, I mean, there is a, a section of this, this Lyme community that is, you know, that, that are strong, strong believers in, in Christ. And they have prayer, prayer groups where when they have rough moments, they'll text each other and then they pray for each other. And it really has helped them get through the, you know, the hardest of their moments. And when you needed that, you're, you were abandoned. And I'm simply just so sorry for that to hear that your church of all of all groups abandoned you. Exactly. It's, it's just awful. Yeah. But thank God you had a supportive mom and dad who were not influenced by the doctors, They're these people at church, and they kept fighting for you to get you the proper treatment. Because I mean, any other family, most other families wouldn't have had the strength and the courage and the, and the persistence that your family had, you know, including yourself, Rebecca, you and your parents to keep pushing along and know that something was wrong. So yeah. That is awful. I mean, since I'm just curious, have have any of these people resurfaced in your life since then and apologized or, you know, realized that maybe they were treating you wrong, you know, in, in a wrong manner, whether it be the church or whether it be socially, any of your friends from when you were younger? Mm. <laughs> you wish, right? But no, um, no, none of them ever. Not nobody. And there was so many people that acted this way. And I never got an apology. In fact, it was worse because years later after I didn't even know these people anymore, they would comment on my Instagram because I was like very active in, in a Lyme disease community back in 2012 to however long still today. And I saw like I made a post about PTSD and my ex-boyfriend Literally didn't follow me, nothing. We had each other blocked. And somehow he was able to get maybe another comment saying, oh, I did research about PTSD and um, only war veterans get PTSD. And I'm like, for real, crazy. Yeah, the, the, the trolls on social media, never mind when they're just random internet trolls, but when it's an ex-boyfriend like that, it's just awful. I mean, the the, the problem that I see as, as a, an outsider looking at, first of all, I'm so sorry that you've been treated this way. And, and again, thank, I'm thankful for you, your for your family and I'm thankful for your strength, but I'm sorry you had to go through this. But I look at this as these things that happen when people speak up and they're vocal and they share their stories and they get attacked. And you get attacked by people that you've known, past romantic partners, you know, the trolls on the internet. Sometimes you just, you get fed up and people just give up. And we've heard, I, I have friends that I've made in the Lyme community that were, were great advocates, you know, out there on social media that have just shut down shop because they can't handle the haters. And that's the part that's so sad because, you know, I get it. It's triggering. It's hard. It, it activates our, our, you know, fight or flight nervous system re response, but these haters are really holding us back from getting the word out in, in the way we could if if there weren't so many people. I mean, our good friend Danny Tiger did a post about detox and she it blew up. I think it got over three. She was just telling us last week, got over three million views. And the amount of hate she got from it 
put her into a flare. She was doing well. And now she's like, you know, look, it just, I, I, I couldn't believe how mean and hateful some of these comments were from people. I just saw it because of the algorithm on Instagram that didn't understand Lyme and just started attacking her about a simple detox video. I mean, it's, it's really, really sad that that's where we are. So again, thank you for not giving up and continuing to advocate. Here we are over 10 years later, and you're still a force to be reckoned with. And you're, you're, you know, you're helping us raise awareness and advocate. So I just want to point out again, your strength. And I digress, Emma, I keep jumping in. I apologize. I just, this is such a great story, Rebecca. I mean, sad, but so powerful and inspirational, Rebecca, you, you are amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. No, definitely. So, okay, so you stopped seeing Dr. Cameron because you were symptom-free. You, you mm-hmm. felt so, like in your own words, you felt great at that time. You were thriving, you were in an apartment, you were working full-time, okay. And did it ever start to hit the fan? Mm-hmm, yep. So I'd say at the end of the year, at the end of my college year, I didn't even get a chance to finish out a full year. Um, I just, it got too much for me. I couldn't go to my morning classes anymore. I was sleeping all the time, started feeling very yucky and fainting again. And uh, I was like, oh no, oh, I know this feeling. I know this fatigue feeling. And so I went back to Dr. Cameron and I told him all my symptoms and at the time, he was like, you know, Rebecca, I don't think this is Lyme anymore. He says, I, I think you're dealing with like po- things that are post Lyme that come after this. And I was not prepared for that. I was not prepared for like, hey, my body's going to get damaged from all this neurological, the way it impacted me. I never thought that I would still, that I would deal with something after I kick the infection. And so he, we didn't know what it was. Um, he made a few suggestions like, like dysautonomia. I'm like, I don't know what the heck that is. And, um, shortly after that, I was hospitalized, like very, I, I, I took a fall down the stairs and it was 20, 20 steps. I ended up in the heart attack stroke unit and they didn't know what was wrong with me. They thought I was dying. Um, they moved me up into the cardiac unit. I stopped breathing and then they called a code on me. There was 20 people in the room. I, it was not good. And then once they had me stable, they said, don't get up, don't go to the bathroom. Don't do anything. What did I do? I got up. I went to the bathroom. I fell. I hit my head. I stopped breathing again. (laughs) My heart was in like the the mid two hundreds. Nobody knows what was going on with me. So I posted, of course, on my little Instagram line chat, what the heck is going on with me, guys? I feel like I am feel like I'm dying. <laughs> Help. People said, look into POTS, look into dysautonomia. I told my doctors that. And they're like, oh, oh, yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> that was the beginning. I'm diagnoses, like dysautonomia journey. Yeah. Did you see Dr. Cameron when you got this POTS disorder, or was that not his specialty anymore? No, after that, I, I didn't see him because I was like, you know what, he's, he's right. This does, it feels like Lyme, but it's not Lyme. But even today, like years and years later, I still wonder, I'm like, do I do I still have Lyme and is it not being treated? Am I just, once again, I know why people put band-aids on it because one, either they don't know or two, it's cheap. 
it's cheap. Your insurance will cover it. It's cheap mm -hmm. to just throw stuff and put band-aids on it. If, if your insurance covers it really, like if I were today to go start my journey over again, as an adult, I would be in severe medical debt. Rebecca, so. I just want to, you know, I want to ask you some questions and, you know, unfortunately some of these things are, are going to be just your opinion, right? Because I don't know that we have enough data to, to answer these questions yet, but I think yeah. back and, you know, Dr. Alan McDonald, who we've had on this podcast, another guy from Long Island, New York, he, yeah. he did a study and he's a pathologist. He's, he does autopsies and studies, sample, you know, tissue samples and blood samples. But he did a study on a man who was treated with, with antibiotics, mm -hmm. 10 years straight of various oral antibiotics for Lyme and tick illnesses. And he had IV antibiotics in there as well. And okay. he ended up after this man passed away, you know, well, you know, not from Lyme, you know, other causes, they did a, 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 an autopsy on him. And they found spirochetes riddled in his body, the Lyme bacteria. And, and oddly enough, they found a very high concentration of spirochetes in his testicles. Why? Who knows, right? So yeah. my thought is, you know, once you have late stage Lyme, a lot of leading Lyme doctors are saying you're never going to fully eradicate the microbe, the spirochete, right. the pathogen, right? It's in your body. It's just kind of at bay because your immune system is managing it. And it's there, just like you have Epstein-Barr virus. You know, the, you know, the Epstein-Barr virus, you had mono, which gave you the Epstein-Barr virus, and you have it in your body for the rest of your life because it just it never goes away. And when yeah. your body's compromised, it comes out and it can make you sicker, right? So I, I, think, I think that's kind of how Lyme disease is for me and maybe for you. And, you know, debate me if you don't agree, because I, we don't really know. And this is the whole debate is, is chronic Lyme an in, in, in immune response? Is it persistent infection? Is it something else? Now, I believe all the above. I believe chronic Lyme can trigger autoimmunity like it did for me. I believe chronic Lyme persists, that the bacteria persists, you know, Borrelia burgdorferi, plus the other things you get from various co-infections. But what are mm -hmm. your thoughts? Because it sounds like you're now of the belief or the mindset that Lyme is out of my body and I'm dealing with damage from it. Or do you believe that the Lyme bacteria was there, but sort of like at bay and it was kept in a corner because your immune system was so healthy. And then because you were working so aggressively, you, you know, working so many hours, you were a full-time student, you were just living life and overdoing it that you were, you're simply couldn't, your body couldn't manage it anymore. And you crashed. Like, you know, what, what are your views on that? Give me, give me your thoughts. Right. I, I still, I still struggle to, to really know, which is crazy because I'm so in tune with my body, but a part of me thinks, oh my gosh, like, the distinctive feeling of that line fatigue. I know what it feels like, but I know that deep down, like I may not like the second time around, third time around, I may not have that same fatigue with Lyme. Like who knows? Like it's so hard to know, like what is a result of Lyme? Do I still have the act active infection in me? The answer is probably yes. <laughs> it's probably there. Uh, like you said, the immune, my immune system is probably keeping it at bay. But in the meantime, I feel like it's so hard to really just be in constant treatment and to feel like just horrible. You know, when you're actively treating Lyme, really, you just break open the door and everything comes out and you feel worse. Yeah, we, we've been, Rebecca, developing patterns. So Rich and I are, are starting another podcast and we're calling it the Lyme Freedom Formula because, and essentially it's a fancy word of saying we've developed patterns over 350 interviews that have led to success in people from chronic Lyme. And mm -hmm. 
we, you know, again, we're corny because we're we're corny, corny old guys, right? But we're, we're naming this PARM. So it's, you know, prehabilitation, assist, which is the kill, right? A assist is really getting, you know, helping your body, assisting your immune system in removing the pathogens. Rehab, which is the recovery piece. And then M is the maintenance, right? So, like, and, you know, we, we break it out and we can go into it deeper, but I feel like you were very successful in, in most of those phases. I mean, you were complementing your treatment. So you weren't, you weren't having too bad of a herx and you even, you know, but when you got to the rehab, you didn't rehab, you came to symptom relief and you just went full force guns blazing and you didn't rehab yourself, you know, and, and that, and, and that, and I'm not trying to be critical because I've made, you know, I, right. I've there also, but I'm trying to use our framework that we put together based on success stories on this podcast and apply it to your journey. Right. So I feel like the recovery, uh, the rehab phase never really happened for you. So you never made it to the maintenance phase, which allows you to kind of maintain a symptom-free remission state because now you're just maintaining your health with, with maybe herbal supplements or nervous system regulation techniques, or maybe just, you know, whatever it is, you know, proper sleep, proper diet, and things happen. Of course, you can never live a completely stress-free life, but I just feel like, you know, using that framework, I guess, first, give us, give me your thoughts on our framework, this prehab, assist, rehab, and then maintenance model, you know, and be honest, because we, you know, we, we always say we want to be, we don't, we don't pride ourselves in being right. We want to have good, valid information to help people. So, and we're not going to be offended if you don't like, if you don't like it and right. let me know where you think you fit into that. And if maybe, you know, maybe you agree that in the rehab and the maintenance phase, you just went too hard once you got better because you wanted so desperately to be normal again. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I, I, I really do like that model. I think it's so so true that the rehab part is so important. I think a lot of lime limeys are, are guilty of like the skipping the rehab part because you know, you know, deep down, you got to take care of your body, but you just, you've been down for so long that you want to get back into it and then go a little crazy. And I think that is something I struggle with. And, um, I still, I, after I got COVID back in July, I started noticing like, oh, <laughs> I haven't felt like this bad in a long time. So I, it was the first time in years where I stopped thinking, okay, maybe, maybe this is dysautonomia and, oh, maybe my Lyme is back. Like it was my first time where I thought, okay, oh, my Lyme might be back and I need to really look and stop blaming all of these other illnesses and putting bandages on it and really get to the source again. And I'm still, but I'm struggling finding a doctor now where I live. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to say, so like for me, I feel like you had a really good, you had a really good beginning part of your journey, but yeah. then, you know, you to have that balanced sort of approach moving forward. Now you're at a part of your journey where you, you need some, somebody to have maybe a more gentle approach not as aggressive as IV antibiotics, but yeah. more of a restorative approach where you can use a variety of, you know, tools. I mean, people have used peptides, people have used, you know, I mean, SOT is more of an assist and a kill, but even just immune modulating herbs, you know, it could be herbal, it could be herbal tea, it could be, you know, uh, vitamins, it could be, uh, I love nervous system regulation techniques. For me, they've been very powerful because I never was as, uh, I never found myself getting as worked up nervous system wise before Lyme. And I feel like I'm much more sensitive to that now to kind of getting in fight or flight and getting defensive and getting upset and getting, you know, so I feel like being able to balance myself out has been very helpful to maintain that level of health. So, I mean, would you agree that now you're looking for somebody to partner with, to help you balance and maintain the gains you've made and not go backwards? Like, what are your thoughts? Or do you think you need more, more kill protocols and you need to go back to the assist phase of, of our palm formula? 
It was so traumatic for me the first time. And I think that's my worry is that if I go back to look into it and to try to treat it again, gosh forbid, I'll end up in the same place. And now it's worse because I'm an adult. There's bills to pay. There's, there's people to take care of. There's like, I can't just lay in bed as an adult, like that type of treatment today for me would be detrimental to my life. And it scares me to like think that I could be in that place psychiatrically again, even though I know it's the low probability that that, that would happen. It's still, it terrifies me. So I, w- I want to dig deeper on this, but I don't want to lose context of your story. So from yeah. the time you, you kind of got sick again to the present date, because now you're 26, right? You were, you were just finishing up college. So some years have transpired there. So did you, did you ever go back to kill treatment? Did you ever go back to IV oral antibiotics? Just can you kind of give us a, a recap of those couple of years to the present day? Because I do want to talk to you about, about the fear of going backwards with treatment again, because that really resonates with me and my personal journey as well. But I don't want to lose sight of your whole story because your whole story is very powerful. Yeah, no, that's okay. Uh, so over the years, I I didn't do anything for Lyme. I actually, it was, it was quite the opposite. I watched my husband, him do Lyme treatment. Um, we actually met because we had the same doctor, Dr. Cameron. So no way. That's yeah. so funny. That's so cute. He was coming up from the city and I was coming down from upstate New York and we were both meeting at Dr. Cameron's office in the middle in Westchester. <laughs> and we met online as well. Like we we realized, oh, we follow each other on Instagram in the line. Wait, group. <laughs> did you physically meet at his office or you, you yeah. knew each other online beforehand? Yeah. And then I, yes. Then I made Dr. Cameron like a little frame and he goes, Oh, I always wondered who made him that frame. Like who made him that picture? <laughs> wow. What a, what a awesome love story. Right. I mean, that's, really? that's, that's wonderful. I mean, so yeah. uh, that's a whole nother topic there. So you've really been helping your husband and we're going to get to that in a second. I think that I, w- I would love to hear you and Emma talk about the, the romantic yeah. piece, because that's so hard in itself, finding romance when you're sick, right. With Lyme disease. But if we could just quickly talk about the fear piece, because it sounds like you kind of just sort of did little things here and there and just kind of, you know, kind of had some ups and downs and bumps in the road. And now you kind of figured out, well, should I do more? Can I do more? And you're not you're, you're, you're no longer symptom free, but you're kind of managing your symptoms. It sounds like right now. Is that is that an accurate assessment of where you're at today? Yeah, I'm not symptom free, but I can't tell what's going on. Okay. You know, I don't know what's what anymore. I'm assuming though, like knowing my body, I'm thinking, okay, this is probably Lyme again. So I'm in the managing, but not really managing, kind of putting band-aids on the symptoms. Right. So I'm actually going to throw this question at Emma, because I think this is a good question for you guys to pick up. And then I want, I would love for you to talk about the the romantic piece of it, because I love hearing success stories in the Lyme community like that romantically. But Emma, what, what are your thoughts on, what are your thoughts on the fear piece because personally i i was paralyzed in fear i regained 30 percent of my health i stayed there for years when doctors were gaslighting me and telling me it wasn't lyme and i just have to deal with it and i have fibromyalgia and i have lupus and i have all this stuff going on and i finally had the courage thanks to, to boot camp and this podcast and people like rebecca and you emma to take steps and my health improved significantly and i mean it's a it's a complete game changer for me health-wise because i finally had you know, I, I, I was able to get past that fear. So what are your thoughts on, and, and some, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, do you think that's a dangerous approach? And, you know, I, I, what, kind, what kind of advice would you give Rebecca in that regard? Because I think we can all relate to that fear component of I've made so much progress. I do not want to go back to where I was because it's a valid fear, right? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? 
more than a valid fear just talking about it. My heart's palpitating and I'm remembering <laughs> all my horror nights and why I didn't want to start treatment again when I found out I had Bartonella after I thought doing my treatments. Um, but I felt like my fear taught me the first time after really sitting with it that I don't have to do this hard and fast approach that I can, I can treat my Lyme at my own rate. If I don't like what my doctor's saying, I can choose to say like, well, isn't that kind of funky? And I don't want to go that fast or I'm hurting a lot. Maybe we can cut back or this pill isn't doing anything for me. When I, when I really took control, it eased my own fear. That's what yeah. I would. Re Rebecca, what are your thoughts for the future? It sounds like you're still, you're thinking the Lyme is back. You're, you know, obviously the, the hardcore IV antibiotic route might be too much for you now because you have, you know, responsibilities you didn't have when you were a child. Are you, do you think you're going to look at maybe some more gentler approaches, you know, and, and again, I'm not, I, I hopeful, I'm hoping this isn't triggering you. You, you seem very emotionally strong. So, you know, uh, I do want to ask, like, you know, what, what are your plans for the future? Because I believe Rebecca, in fact, I know you can feel better than you are today. I mean, look, you're, you're, you're obviously doing well, but I know you can get back to symptom free. And I mean, so I want to challenge you to think about that and think about what your next steps could be to help you get to, to a symptom free state where you're really loving life. And not that you're not loving life, but you can really love life even more, Rebecca. Yeah. Uh, first step is finding a Lyme literate doctor where I am now. Um, we had one in San Diego where we lived, had one in New York. Now that we're in South Florida, um, you know, I, it's not that I don't want to commute. I'm willing to commute. I get nervous. I get nervous because since, what, 10 years now? Since then, there has been so many different ways that people have started to treat Lyme. So many different opinions, so many different stories. And I'm like, it's not the same Lyme community that I started out with. And a lot of it freaks me out. I'm like, okay, what, what's going on here? And so I don't know what to trust, what not to trust, where to put, where to put my finances, where to put my time, my energy. So it's going to take a lot for me. It's going to take a lot of researching. It's going to take a lot of maybe diving back in and asking for questions, like help and advice, but at the same time, taking everything with a grain of salt and making those decisions. Cause when I was a child, I wasn't making decisions. Like I didn't get a choice of my decisions. I was just led by my parents to, to do what they felt was best, which ultimately was. But now that I'm an adult, I, like Emma said, I'm responsible for like the decisions that you make. But also yeah. when you are so sick, you'll take anything, like you'll do anything, especially someone like a, a doctor that knows what they're finally talking about. You will do anything. So it's all like, yeah, it's all. Yeah. Like Emma, and I just want to say for Rebecca, you know, obviously Emma, Rich and I are here for you offline personally to guide you in any way we can based on our experiences you know, we, we, our community's here for you. Everybody listening to this podcast, I'm sure to be happy to, to chat with you. And, you know, look, this is something I, I look at this as a lifelong journey where I'm a different person today because of my experience. And I'm constantly looking for ways to improve my health, no matter what, even, even no matter where I'm at in my journey, I'm always going to be looking for hacks 
and ways to optimize my health. And now, Rebecca, you're inside a state where you're looking to find a practitioner to partner with to give you more tools to help continue improve your health, right? So I think it's a really beautiful place you're in where you're you're working, you're married, you're living in Florida, and you're here in this podcast. And you, I mean, you've just been, you've been, you know, you've, this has been an amazing interview. It's such a hopeful, powerful interview. But I do, I know we've been on for a while. I'd love for you and Emma to talk about the romance piece because we've had some, not many, we've had, we've had a couple of people come on and share that they've had some great successes despite their chronic Lyme journey. And I just mm-hmm. want you guys to talk about, you know, how that happened and give our, our listeners some tips and tricks to have a successful romantic relationship and also let them know that they are deserving of it. Because I think the biggest thing people ex- share with us privately is I don't feel like I deserve love. I feel less than because I'm sick. I am not, I am not quote unquote healthy and therefore nobody can love me. So if you could just talk about that and then give our listeners some tips and tricks and you guys could just kind of have a little discussion about the romance piece, because I think that's a really unspoken part of this journey, the loneliness of it when, when it comes to being an adult and, and romantically speaking. Hmm. Well, were you and your husband, like I'm picturing in my head and I could be totally wrong, like this little support team, just like bonding over their awful treatments together and becoming best friends through that. Is that how, how did this, how did you guys develop? Yeah. So it was, it was like that. We, we would relate with a lot of things and like, we were like, Oh my gosh, really this? Or yeah, I feel like this or, Oh my gosh, is it a full moon? Or, Oh, I'm having a flare, like, like random things like that. And even today we, we still do that. We're like, Oh my gosh, I feel terrible. And he's like, yeah, I feel awful. This is so stupid. And I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll rub your back because your back hurts. Well, then you can massage my hands because my neuropathy hurts, like things like that. But what people don't talk about also is because sometimes you're both in pain at the same time, or you're both struggling mentally at the same time, it can also be the opposite. You know, it's, it's not so like, it's not always easy. It's just because you two have the same thing. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it can be, oh, hey, we really got to make sure we communicate. We work together because we're both experiencing bad things at the same time. Yeah. I can go go either way. But we really, we supported each other because he, he's relapsed twice since I've been with him. And both times he needed IV antibiotics for almost two years. And so we've been together for seven and a half years. So most of uh, our relationship, he's been on treatments and we've really had to be there for each other through the thick and thin. But at the end of the day, like we, we really, we really do care for each other. And I could not imagine being with somebody who didn't have a chronic illness. Yeah. My, my boyfriend, we met, um, we're together about four years, a little over. We met at college together and I met him as I was becoming very sick. So I am impressed that he stayed with me and didn't think I was crazy because he just met me. And I'm like, my hip is like, out and he's like okay what do you need and he just like totally believed me and yeah I felt like at some point I he was so amazing I would lean on him for everything but I didn't realize at what point I became responsible for my own needs and Mm -hmm. at several points I was aware that I needed to 
recognize and check in with myself. I'm not doing well mentally and it's not his job to fix it. It's my job to fix it. And that's something that has been huge in our relationship because it's so hard to just tell someone how you're feeling when you don't know how you're feeling and saying what you need. And he's always been really receptive, but sometimes it's just really hard to say what you need without wanting to, we're long distance and it would hurt my hand to hold the phone. And I would feel awful saying, I I can't talk right now, but Mm -hmm. communication I've, I've learned. And, but also really, really, really finding out where you are every single day. That was huge for me and being honest with myself about where I was. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Yeah. Whether you're able-bodied or, or not able-bodied, it's, I feel like there's, there are some people who are, who, who don't, when they don't have Lyme um, and a, lot, a person with Lyme, you know, you try to date, it just, they don't get it. There's no empathy they're like, what is this? Or like, they'll call it Lyme's disease. Mm-hmm. And we'll be like, oh, okay. Like thinking that they can actually blow it off as if it doesn't exist. I've met yeah. people like, like it doesn't exist. It's not there. Oh, well, I don't see it. Mm-hmm. And then there are people who have a lot of empathy and they care, like they either care too much where it's just like, they're trying to really get involved and, and you need to really like do it yourself. Or there's like a, a good, it's like about finding really a good balance in somebody who works for you with you because you're never going to have a perfect person but communication I know everybody says communication it's like a blanket statement but you have to express what you need and over time I also realized like my husband is not a doctor he's not a therapist and as much as I need to lean on him like he can't fix all my problems and vice versa like that would be unfair and I think that it's an easy trap to fall into but it's hard because you're so vulnerable and you really want like another person, like at such an intimate relationship to, to understand. And dating is very hard with a chronic illness. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be the most important thing at the end of the day is that they understand you understand each other. But if someone is not with a chronic illness, that they understand what you need with a chronic illness and what life must be like. And I just want people listening to know that you're worthy just because you may not be where you want to be. You are further along in your journey than you were at your worst and you are worthy of love. And that's, I think it's the most important message here. And I mean, I'm, I, our listeners obviously can't see us. This is an audio only podcast, but I was smiling the entire time you guys were talking because it really is such powerful advice. So thank you for being so personal with, with your stories, uh, both of you on that piece. And I do just want to get into your what you're doing, Rebecca, today, because one of the reasons why we, Rich and I and, and Emma are fans of you is because I am just so in love with the art that you perform. I mean, you know, I, I call it art. I mean, I hope, I hope you know, but I, I believe it's true art, what you're doing. So it's rhinestone art, right? I mean, you're creating these really beautiful pieces of art and you're sharing them with the world on social media. And so about putting a smile on my face. Every time I come across one of your posts, I just smile because they're so beautiful. So talk to us about how you how you got into this world of sharing such joy and, and, and happiness through art with the community and how it's helped you in your journey. Yeah. So in the beginning of my Lyme journey, back when I was a teenager, 
I always like really pretty sparkly things. And um, I came across crystals one day. I'm like, oh, I want to start putting crystals on everything. Because, you know, I was home and I wasn't at school and I was bored. And so I was coming up with all these different projects. And I'm like, okay, let me start doing this. So that's when it started, my love for crystals, when I had Lyme. And then as I got older, it continued. And one day I'm like, you know what? I really can't do much, but my hands, they still work. You know, I was on disability struggling in that department a little bit but I was like I, I need to try something so I started doing rhinestone art and then along the way I said you know what um really my brand like every month I was donating to a different Lyme organization like a little bit what I could I'm like you know what? why don't I just start having other people tell their stories and just like fill out a form I have a form on my website for people to fill out I also have like a blog with like sources to all the possible Lyme information that you would ever need I like really try to have that there and then um, I started having I think so far I've had four people right and I said in exchange for sharing your story like a little post like I will make you a cup at all you can have it whatever like no charge like I'll send it to you and I know that it's super important to be hydrated when you have Lyme so I was sending people little cups for sharing their stories I mean I I got very sick after COVID I I kind of slowed down a little bit with posting so I haven't been able to do as much but that was something that I was doing for a while and I have like a whole highlight bubble sharing random Lyme facts mostly reposting because I don't I'm not gonna like provide um so, like any information for myself so I'm like reposting things from different Lime accounts to show any of my followers my customers like hey here's some information about this you may not know That's awesome. yeah I'm I'm on your Instagram right now and I'm looking at your your Lime bling right and it's just beautiful and I love I love your tagline in your your profile caption where it says blinging since 2012 I mean that's just <laughs> a cool that's a cool tagline you got there and I, I just encourage everybody to go check you out. So what is, what is your handle? I, I'm probably going to, I don't even want to, I don't even know what it is. I'm going to say it incorrectly. Can you just give us your handle, your Instagram handle so people can go check you out? Bijou by Becca, B-I-J-O-U by B-E-C-C-A. Um, a lot of people say bougie by Becca. I'm like close, but not exactly. <laughs> it not just quite. like uh, jeweled and Delicate, elegant and uh, delicate. That's what it means. Rebecca, are you still letting, uh, looking for people to come on to be interviewed by you on your blog? Are you, you know, should we, is that, should we do a call to action here for people listening to say, mm -hmm. Hey, look, if you, if you want to share your story, reach out to Rebecca, or are you, are you temporarily suspending that? No, yes, please. I, I'm definitely going to be doing that. Um, there may be a little delay. I'm getting the cups out to everybody, but I would love to, to do that again like it was such a wonderful experience with the four different people that I did it with I was like, the best I loved hearing people's stories and so many people also that knew nothing about Lyme appreciated hearing their stories too I'm like you know what I don't care if these people don't care and they're just here to see the cups I'm like I'm gonna share it anyways <laughs> well exactly. I, I want to be your first volunteer from this podcast so I volunteer when you are ready to be a a contributor to your blog I will write whatever you need and do whatever you need so Please hold me accountable, and I would love to participate if if you're willing to be a a guest blogger. And I, I do want to also ask: Are you on any other social media? Is there any other any other uh, accounts people can check you out on? Because I mean, like I said, I, I on Instagram it just brings me joy seeing your your account. So are you on Facebook? Are you on TikTok? Are you on any other platforms? 
Thank you. Yeah, I'm on just TikTok and Instagram mainly for now. Well, the, the final question of our podcast is always asked by our guest co-host. So not to put Emma on the spot, but Emma, do you have a final question for Rebecca before we conclude this brilliant podcast? I have two questions. Love it. Um, can I be the second person to submit a story? And um, yeah. <laughs> what advice would you give for someone today if they had just got bitten by a tick? Okay. So I would say go to your primary care doctor. Um, make sure your primary care doctor listens. If they don't listen, go to try another care doctor and make sure that during this time, like you're, there's um, a lot of credible sources online, like Global Global Lyme Alliance. You guys also, the Tick Boot, um, tick boot Camp, uh, you guys have sources as well. Um, ILADS, there's a lot of sources. I would encourage people to look at all the different things to be very aware with their body and listen to your body. And most of all, have support. I don't care if it's one friend. I don't care if it's one family member or somebody online. Find somebody to, to be there with you through this period of time. Because if you get bit, it's not... It's not so easy as like, oh, let me just throw the tick off. Like, no, you got to really, really watch your body or else you can get a little out of hand. Yeah. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining our Tick Boot Camp. I just want to share with you that I had a long day at work. I came home to this podcast. I've been looking forward to it. But I have, I have life brought back to me. I have such energy and happiness because of your story. You're, you're filled with hope and inspiration and your positive attitude and your approach to helping this community is just beautiful. So thank you so much. Emma, thank you for co-hosting. As always, you were amazing. And I just want to say for everybody listening, please, please, please go check out Rebecca's social media and check out her beautiful store and all her beautiful artwork. And thank you again. Thank you for listening to our Tick Boot Camp interview with our guest, Rebecca. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Rebecca, visit her Instagram at Bijou by Becca, B-I-J-O-U by B-E-C-C-A. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com slash bite to visit the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of almost 350 episodes, subscribe to our email list or share feedback, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.